Hi, and welcome to episode 112 of the Untethered Podcast. Today we have Natasha Duffin joining us. Tasha's an occupational therapist working in infant and early childhood sleep and feeding, mom of three little kids and the founder of Sound Asleep Baby. She's passionate about education and dispelling the commonly held belief that sleep problems in infancy and early childhood are all behavioral. She's worked with countless families who have traveled the behavioral sleep training path via many mode, multiple sleep hospital stays, sleep consultants, books, advice from friends and family all unsuccessfully without the physiological aspects of correct breathing during sleep being considered. Two of her three children have had sleep disorder breathing and tongue tie that was dismissed, and she is living the journey and has lived the journey and knows firsthand how amazing improving sleep quality in our kids is. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Vulcan. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Okay. Hi. Um, hi, Hallie. Hi, Natasha. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you here and to talk about all things sleep training. So yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. Will you start and tell us a little bit about your background? Because you're actually, you're an occupational therapist first, and I know you're still an occupational therapist, but how did you get from, yes, from yes. that to sleep training? So um background in occupational therapy and I didn't even work in pediatrics before I had kids um, and basically you know when you have your own children and you come up against these little hurdles and um, I thought my first baby was um, not a good sleeper and I think it was just you know adjusting to actually having to get up in the middle of the night and taking all that time to settle and things like that um, and I guess I started by reading a, a thousand books because I always wanted to know why um, or what to do and different aspects of it and how I could get my baby to sleep through the night. Um, I had literally like 15, 20 books and surprise, surprise, none of them were the magic trick. Um, then by the time I had my second baby, I kind of um, discovered that actually there's actually some science behind infant sleep. And so then I went on to learn to study that because what I what didn't sit well with me with all these books that I read first baby was that you're telling me to do all these things but why and coming from that health science background that really really annoyed me and all these people said different things and no one would tell me why just because it worked for the baby that they were doing it with so when I discovered sleep science then I was like wow okay there is sleep hormones, there's circadian rhythms, there's homeostatic sleep drives, all these sort of things. And so I actually started out um, on my um, sleep consultant journey, in inverted commas, um, with a behavioural perspective because that's what's out there. Um, and then, funnily enough, when I had my third baby, um, I then discovered, oh, hang on a sec, this doesn't seem to fit. Like, I'm noticing all these things um, that surely affect her sleep. Um, and so then found yourself, I found um, Dr. David McIntosh, 
um, and various other health professionals which were like talking all about TOTS and airways. And then I've just you amalgamated all that knowledge to, um, I guess, come up with a, uh, well, not come up with, but to consolidate all those things together to provide a different approach to uh, sleep support or sleep guidance um, rather than behavioural sleep training, considering the child holistically um, and taking into account all those things rather than just like, okay, you need a two-hour nap here, two-hour nap, two-hour nap there, and you've got to just let your baby cry because we've got to consider them as a whole. Yeah. So that's how I, I ended up here. I love that. And this is something that I also, between children, <laughs> dove into a little bit, as I was just yeah. mentioning to you off, off recording a moment ago, because my first one always slept, and but only really slept if she was like on me, next to me, like we were bed sharing. Um, which everybody in the U.S. says is like, you know, a no-no. And then if she was in the stroller or car seat when she was like under the age of one, like she would for sure fall asleep. And I think for her, a lot of it was related to her tots and her digestive upset just from, you know, swallowing mm -hmm. too much air. And I think she was always most comfortable if she was either attached to me or she was like in that, you know, that changes your, your positioning when you're in a car seat, it just yeah. feels better on the belly. So that compression on the belly and that different positioning versus like laying flat for her, that was mm. why I was convinced she slept better that way. I mean, I would put her, we'd go for a car ride and we would go like to the mall or something and she would just sleep for three hours straight. And I was like, why can't I get her to sleep in a crib like this? She also would never <laughs> sleep in her crib. She was in my room for like a really long time. And so we ended up doing traditional sleep training with her more behavioral approach because that's what that's what people say you do here and I didn't know any better yeah, yeah. And, you know and it killed me as a mom but it seemed to work but now I I go back and I look at like but did it really like did it really work <laughs> and she was also yeah. we can talk more about this but like she was also the kiddo who slept with her tush up in the air and that tripod sleeping and for her I think she was also trying to keep her airway open so that you know, yes. she never wanted to sleep on her back and she would always flip herself right on over to her belly, like as early as three months. And then whoop, she went up into that tripod position and I was like, yep. okay, well she's sleeping. So she's fine. And now, now that I know yes. what I know, I'm like, holy cow, she was probably keeping her airway open. And that's kind of frightening to even think about. So anyways, we'll, we'll get there, but it's, it's just so <laughs> interesting because I, I totally took a different approach with my second. So I'm really excited to just learn from you today about the differences between some of these approaches and for people, yeah. you know, especially those of us in the U S who maybe are not as familiar with different approaches. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about like the difference between a behavioral approach to sleep training and in infancy and what you consider a more holistic approach? Sure. So I guess a behavioral approach is that um, basically the concept that the problem is the behavior um, and the sleep is the problem. So therefore, the intervention is targeted at those problems. So in, with that perspective, the concept that the problem, that the reason your baby won't sleep is because you rock them to sleep or because you co-sleep. Mm -hmm. It doesn't see that as the symptom. Um, and it sees that the disturbed sleep is the problem. But when you look more holistically, um, my perspective is that, okay, we rock or we feed or we co-sleep when there's underlying issues with sleep because 
that's the only way the baby will get to sleep because of um, essentially a fight-flight response triggered with um, the brain that's flagging that sleep as a risk. The, the child will create a set of safe, safe circumstances around sleep um, and often that can be real, really involved because they are yeah, activating that fight-flight response. Um, so there might be lots of rocking, lots of, you know, it's not an easy process to get them to sleep. Um, and that actually, alongside that perspective, my perspective is that um, the sleep is not the problem. The sleep is the symptom. That's the thing that you're seeing. But what's going on underneath the surface there that is presenting like that? And those things that you touched on there with the, um, you know, the car seat, the tripod sleeping, the sleeping on, the co-sleeping, they're all huge flags for me um, because, like you touched on as well, airway patency, lying on your back, not great for if you've got tots or other airway issues going on, it's going to be a hell of a lot harder to breathe. And I do often find that um, with bubs that I do roll quickly or as soon as they start to roll, they figure it out themselves. Oh, yeah. Like, I can breathe better like this, whoop, over I go. Um, and a lot of, and you know, if you're lucky and your baby learns to roll at three months like you and like my first baby, um, then good. And then they seem to sleep a bit better. But those babies that, um, I know you talk lots about the whole body effects of TOTS um, in terms of um, delaying some gross motor things like that. So how that, um, you know, sometimes those, those roles, take a long time to get to. So even though the baby could potentially sleep better on the tummy, you obviously can't sleep them there until they can get the roll there themselves and roll back out themselves. So you don't, yeah, I guess I'm saying that in terms of like, if you think, oh yeah, I think my baby would sleep better on their tummy, you can't put them there unless they can get in and out of that position themselves. Right, yeah, I know that's such a great point because and, and Lily, my first, she was the kid who rolled early. She was climbing up the stairs at six months, climbing back down the stairs at seven months. Like she was that kid who I kind of blame like her overall tightness in her body. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. as the reason why, like she, I have it. I actually was doing a um, presentation and I used her last Friday and I was just thinking back to like her birth. And when you look at all of the, the images from in the hospital, she was already holding her neck up and had a preferred side mm. that she would look to and, you know, fed better on one side than the other. And, you know, all the classic symptoms of a baby who's got, you know, maybe some torticollis and she doesn't present as a kid who has it now, but we've done some interventions and she, mm. you know, she was super mobile early on. She walked normal. Like that was a normal you know, stage and everything, but she was pretty early in her other growth motor milestones. And, you know, I knew she could get in and out of the role and she was putting herself into it. So I'm thankful for that. Mm. But, mm. oh my goodness, if I, I'm almost glad that I didn't know then what I know now to some degree, yeah. because I think <laughs> I would have been a completely like neurotic mother, total mess being like, yeah. why is my baby sleeping on her stomach? Should I be concerned? I mean, yes, I should have been concerned, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, and it, it's it's so interesting too because you mentioned these these symptoms or these red flags that you know okay when a mom says baby's tripod sleeping they sleep better in the car seat baby you know sleeps better on the parent like she would do tummy time on me but tummy time on the floor was like uh, it didn't last very long and she was not happy in it you know because of how tight she was and even though she would sleep you know, in that tripod position on her belly, but, she, but that was a different positioning and she would yeah. turn her head more to the preferred side. And 
you know, it's so interesting because the, the program that I use, they call them sleep props, right? And like you said, it, it makes it the yeah. sleep props the problem. It's like, well, the you problem. mom are holding baby too long and you're rocking her to sleep and you're giving her, you know, something that is basically helping her to sleep instead of her teaching herself how to go to sleep. And it gives me chills to think about because it's sort of, it's, I'm over here going like, wow, like that was completely behavioral. I am an SLP. Like I understand behavioral approaches to treatment, you know, and here I am as a mom, just doing what I thought I should do purely out of survival. And because that's what people told me to do. And that's what people were using, you know, and now I look at it and I go, oh my gosh, like, wow. These were all major red flags for her airway issues and her tots issues. And it's all so interconnected. Well, and yeah, like that, that's, that's the story that's out there. And that's like my big um, passion thing to like help parents learn that it's not your fault. It's not something you've created, this hole, you've created a rod for your own back. It's, it's not a thing. Like if your baby is functioning optimally um, and they're given a chance, they will learn to do that themselves. Like, and yes, there's, you know, you're up feeding and you're doing all that stuff like, early on but if they if everything's going well it's not going to be like this huge you know two to four to six week fight trying to teach them to self-settle um yeah and I'm, I'm not saying that there's no need for any behavioral intervention um because some yes those behaviors do become habit but the, the behavior is not the problem right and so when you address holistically what's going on um you then have biology working with you instead of against you when you want to do these behavioural interventions. The other big thing um, I think about with that is that um, if I recognise that there is something going on underlying, um, I also understand that, you know, like, like we were saying before, like if you've got to go back to work and your child's up six times a night, you've probably got to do something about it here and now rather than waiting till when they're two and they can have their tonsils out kind of thing. Um, and so I guess it's about identifying what's going on and going, okay, they've got stuff going on. We can do these things to support them through it. And look, I'm not going to say, and I wouldn't anyway, but I'm not going to say let's do a cried out method because I know this brain is flagging that as a risk and it's just not fair to be like, okay, you've got, you can't breathe properly, but I'm just going to shut the door and check on you at two minutes, four minutes, six minutes. Like you can support children through it. Um, and it's about respecting that underlying um, issue to me. Um, and you can, and you can, you can do, you can support them through it. Um, and that's the other thing that with, with any behavioral intervention, I guess the big the thing that's out there that is that it's all cried out and leaving your babies to cry and all that sort of stuff. It's really not. That's one old, I think it's Ferber thing that it's just, you know, that's what's out there and people think, well, that's my only option. It's not. It's 100% not. Like you, you, you can do behavioural inter- intervention supporting your child, um, but it's, from my perspective, you want to look at what's the bigger picture first and foremost. Like I have... Um, it's really, it's really sad. I have families that come to me that have done these um, multiple um, inpatient stays at various different services. They, you know, three or four or five day stays or a day stay here and, you know, all this stuff. And they're just doing the same behavioural thing over and over and over and over again. 
And then as part of my intake assessment, I do obviously a really holistic um, questionnaire, but I look at um, feeding um, and get them to send through videos and photos if I'm not seeing them in person. And like I can tell straight away from the look of their face. <laughs> okay, that's the Airways kids. And the reason that that 15 days of hard slog behavioural sleep training hasn't worked because the problem is not behavioural. Yeah. So it's never going to work. No, <laughs> I know that's heartbreaking when you get those families. It is. It is. But also it's amazing that they even have the ability to connect with you and that there are providers out there who can advise on this and help through. I don't think parents realise that. And I was so excited to have you on the podcast because – you know, I was one of those parents who didn't even realize that there was something other than cry it out. And I didn't realize that my child was going into fight or flight. And I didn't realize that, you know, I just thought this was a baby resisting wanting to sleep. She'd rather sleep on me. That's what she knows. I need to remove these sleep props. And, you know, so I think it's um, a really critical conversation that we're having because if we can flag these things early on in infancy, then we really are changing these children's lives. And, you know, I know that you have, um, you know, you wrote down David McIntosh's book and, um, you know, you've, uh, you're familiar with, with him. And I know he's also in Australia and I, I wish he was here. He actually just presented for us recently. And I was like, can we clone you uh -huh. to the U.S.? Because we, <laughs> the U.S. things operate so differently. And, you know, it's tough to find an ENT. Like I can count on maybe two hands, the number of ENTs in the entire United States of America who recognize some of these issues in infants and toddlers and will do something about oh, it. Oh, really? It's, it's awful. Yeah. So my, so my first daughter, when I took her at 24 months to the ENT, the first ENT turned me away and said, well, I'm not going to release her ties because she's not breastfeeding anymore. And I was like, okay, what? <laughs> and then the second one turned <laughs> me away and said, she's fine. And I actually took her to him specifically to look at the tonsils because he was supposed to be like the airway centric guy and her tonsils were almost touching they were so inflamed they looked sickly and he was like they look unimpressive to me and I was like uh I'm not an ENT but they look very impressive to me <laughs> it's just like all right in a bad well. way yeah <laughs> and he, her mouth was closed at rest and she was nasal breathing so he wasn't concerned and I was like but what about sleep like what about it was just, it was very interesting. And so she's been, since she's now five and she's had some expansion work done and her tonsils did go down quite a bit when we expanded her palate, which was either coincidental or totally related, who knows. Um, but, and she also went to an oral surgeon and had her, her tongue tie released when she was 24 months old around that same time I was taking her to these other appointments. And it totally, I mean, it's totally changed her life. And like, we're still working through some things, but, you know, she had gone from, um, she's now, she's a great sleeper. She's not a bedwetter. She's not, you know, she doesn't have all these issues that I hear about other children her age struggling with. And so I'm like, okay, like we've worked through that. But, but in the U.S., it's, you know, I know David talks about like, well, if those tonsils are enlarged and are causing sleep disordered breathing, like we need to get them out. And here in the U.S., it's like, well, if they don't have obstructive sleep apnea, you know, well, I think they're okay. Let's try let's try some antibiotics. If the antibiotics don't work, we'll try another round of antibiotics. <laughs> or we'll send you to the allergist. Yeah. It's just such a runaround for these parents. It's really, really tough. And, and these kids, for the most part, have been dealing with this since birth. It's been there all along. It's not a new yeah. problem. It just got, it snowballed into such a big issue that they finally realized something was going on and took their child to the doctor. But 
here, everything has to go through insurance. So even with an emergency tonsillectomy, like you still have to go for an emergency sleep study first to get insurance to cover it. Oh, it's, wow. it's just, yeah, welcome to the US. So yeah. <laughs> there's that. But yeah, you know, we, we kind of touched on this whole topic of sleep disordered breathing. So let's go there for a minute because yeah. you know, you've mentioned it kind of briefly, but that, you know, if there is an airway issue, if they truly have disordered sleep, because of the airway, we know these cried out methods are just cruel. We're sending them into fight or flight. So is there anything yeah. else you would add on that topic? Yeah. And I, I guess, yeah, they're, they're already in fight or flight. Um, and do and with all the, that hormonal cascade of things that happens with that and the elevated cortisol and all that kind of stuff. And then um, you do a cried out cortisol. <laughs> like, and you... You, you will see behavioural change when you do that. I just don't think it's a, <laughs> um, a fair way to do it. But, the, but you will see behavioural change, but you won't see an improvement in sleep quality. So um, the child is still not going to get deep restorative sleep. They will stop calling out for help, but it hasn't actually done anything to improve their sleep quality. Um, and invariably what happens is that... Um, you'll do a really hard slog for, you know, a couple of weeks and everybody's in tears and but then baby's sleeping. Then you go on holiday or baby gets sick or it's daylight saving or you have a family member come and stay. And you, if you just get that, that set of conditions and circumstances off centre, back we go again. Yep. And, yep. <laughs> and then you're back at square one. <laughs> um, yeah. You're nodding like that's happened. <laughs> Uh, me. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and that's, you know, and it's interesting too, because I feel like even the program that I use spoke to that and was like, you're going to, you know, it's the high, it's high likelihood that if you change the sleep environment that your child may have a backslide, if you're still within like your first year of sleep training and, you know, they, they almost make you think like, okay, expect this so that when it does happen, yeah. it's not wrong. But then again, yeah. it's, it, and that's fine, it, except it's, it's hiding the issue, right? It's, it's basically covering yeah, up the It's a Band-Aid. Right. And it's, it's a Band-Aid yeah. for a very serious health issue. And that's where yeah. we have to be so careful who we listen to. And, and it's, you know, there's so much information out there these days that it's tricky because it's like, well, who do I trust and what's helpful? And, you oh, know, absolutely. you know, and I know what you're, what you're sharing with us, Tasha is, is uh, Natasha, it's very, in, it's informative and I think people need to listen to this because you know as somebody in the talk space and having been the mom of the patient who's lived through you know trying to sleep train a tied baby who had you know torticollis and who clearly was fighting to keep her own airway open versus a, my second child who slept you know on her back no problem because we released her ties day one we did you know we did every, things just went different with the second one because we were able to intervene a lot earlier. I never really had to sleep trainer per se. I think we did try it for a couple of nights just to get her like used to her crib, but it was not the same experience as it was with my first one by any means. Yeah. And that's what it comes back to. Yeah. We had biology working with you this time right, exactly. and it's just like a, a little bit of an adjustment yeah. and yeah. Yeah. So it and was it much like easier and less heartbreaking for all of us for the, with the second one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I also didn't, I, you know, I made up my own rules the second time. I was like, I am not going to have a screaming baby for an hour and a half yeah. for the 
first night like I did the first night and you know, with my yeah. first my, my other child and I'm not gonna you know and it went I I can I can tell you even like she's five and a half and I can tell you like the first night she cried for like an hour and a half it was like 90 minutes the next night it was 75 mm. minutes the next night it was like 60 minutes and then it went down to 30 and I'm like sitting here horrified that I put my child through that and it's now five years later <laughs> like it's you know because when you know better you we only do better. what we know yeah right, right. Yeah. you know it's like I was exactly. it was like I have to go start treating again I want to go back to work so I need my baby to sleep so I can sleep and yeah and it's I yeah. feel for the mamas out there because I know also in the U.S. we don't get more than three months and some moms are back to work even faster than that and it's yeah which is tough and you're gonna do the quick fix right because you're gonna survive yeah yeah and I guess and to touch on I guess that whole journey of finding who you ask for um so I have three kids and two of them incidentally are both airway and top kids as well and like I have also lived that where how many times can you ask somebody but I don't think my is that normal yes they're fine they don't have a tongue tie they don't have this they're fine they're fine. They'll grow out of it. And then I now thankfully have a great um, little network in Perth and um, some providers around Australia where, um, yeah, like that I have, I've actually, you know, the Perth one specifically, I have taken my own children to. So I know how amazing they are um, that, that are really in this space and are willing to treat it because, you know, like, yeah, you can wait till they're five, but all that brain development that's been happening going on in these formative years I personally want my baby to be breathing as best they can for those five years and not just waiting to see what happens um and yeah so my my middle child um he had his and this is how I often will explain to people like this is what happens when sleep quality improves like he I think we had his tonsils and adenoids out at and tongue tie released at about three and a half and he, um, he used to wake up, like he, he always slept 12 hours at night, um, but he would wake up so, so grumpy, so grumpy. And he would have two and a half, three hour nap at three, three and a half years old if you'd let him. You'd take him in the car at 11 o'clock in the morning and he would be out. You'd transfer him like, I mean, great. It was great for me having a, a kid that slept so long, but sleep quality is not there when we had those tonsils and adenoids and tongue tie done like literally within weeks you could tell when he woke up in the morning and he never snored he never snored he never had apnea it was this end of the sleep disorder breathing scale um not this apnea end but he you, you can just tell like he is a different person he could get through the day before that if he was refusing to nap because napping wasn't cool anymore because he was three and a half. And then he got to day three. It was like his behaviour was horrible in the afternoon. to be like, all right, tomorrow we're getting in that car and we're taking you. Um, and literally weeks after he had all the ENT stuff done, never napped since and makes it through the day and wakes up like he's had 12 hours sleep, not four and a half. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I mean, my... So Lily stopped napping at 18 months. I think she stopped napping at 18 months, never took a nap again. And I have to wonder if she was just like, I'm not fighting this like twice a day. Like you already put me down. Yeah. At night and she was so exhausted at night. She would sleep through the night. And I've had, I had a patient who is one of my favorite examples. Um, 
I actually walked into a preschool classroom and heard this two-year-old, I think she was two at the time, um, snoring. And so, and I love how you brought that up and we'll talk about that more in a minute, how there's this whole statistical uh, scale, right? It's to, from the kids who are mouth appears to be closed, they don't snore, but they have all these behaviors and their quality, you know, you know, basically their quality is not there. They're getting quantity, but quantity doesn't mean quality. And that, you know, then we see all these other behaviors during the day. They, this child in particular was snoring. She did have obstructive sleep apnea as a toddler. And I just heard her in the classroom. She wasn't a patient of mine. I was treating another child. I took them back to their classroom. It was nap time. And I asked the teachers, I said, does she always sound like that? And they were like, oh yeah, yeah, since day one. And it was like five months into the school year. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So I went to, I was, I went to um, the director and I said, okay, I might be overstepping here, but <laughs> I need you to contact this child's parents and find out if that's how she sleeps at home too. I was like, because I have some big health concerns. Like this is very dangerous. What she's doing, what's going on right now. And they were like, well, you're flagging something you think is dangerous. I feel like I, I'm like, they were like, absolutely. We'll reach, reach out to the parents. And I was like, okay, here's my information. They can call me. I'm not going to charge them. Just have them call me. I just want to talk to them. Turns out mom, mom worked in a hospital. She's a medical professional. You know, it was just all these things that I was going, how do they not recognize this about their own child? And mom was like, I work with adults. I didn't know this that snoring wasn't normal. I mean, this is a medical professional, right? So I, I say this because I want parents to realize that even medical professionals know that snoring 100%. is common, but they don't realize that it's not normal and that we should, you know, be paying attention. But also on that same, you know, regard, as you were mentioning, your child wasn't even snoring and still had an airway issue. So we need to yeah. be looking at more than just, is their mouth open? Are they snoring at night? Do they have audible breathing? Well, all three of those are big issues that we need to deal with, but they could also have a slightly open mouth or a closed mouth and still have airway issues. So we really need to be looking at all the red flags, all the symptoms surrounding for this kiddo, you know, she did go for an emergency, um, sleep study, which turned into an emergency tonsillectomy. And afterwards the parents were like, she used to sleep through the night. She never woke us up. And I, but she was also the child who was turned around at circle time, who didn't respond to her name, who seemed kind of, you know, out there and just Mm in her own little world because her quality was shit. <laughs> Excuse my friend. Yeah, I was like, absolutely. <laughs> and to see the complete 180, you know, we had some catching up to do even at once by the time she was three, we were working on speech and language skills at that point because she had missed out on so much. And this is like you said, these are the formative mm. years and the impact yeah. that it has on these children's ability to learn and to exist with their peers and to, you know, engage in social communication and just, exist and learn how to be in a classroom or how to just play on a playground. I mean, it's everything is impacted even to the point of feeding. You know, I know I've got, I've had a lot of kiddos. I worked on her with feeding as well because she was also tongue tied and it's like between the tongue tie and huge tonsils, she couldn't keep food in her mouth. And so she learned these awful habits of, you know, putting, using her fingers to keep food in her mouth and push things over because her tongue couldn't do it to her molars to chew. And very messy. And, you know, thankfully I can say she's doing fabulous now and she's really thriving because we were able to intervene early, but it's, there's such a spectrum of 
how these children present, that it's not always this case. This is a more severe, obvious case that actually got missed for quite some time because nobody was really looking into why this child was snoring so loudly until I flagged it and it was a child I didn't even know, you know? And it's mm. just, for me, it's scary that those children are slipping between the cracks because if those children with all of the major symptoms that are overt that we can see and hear are slipping through the cracks, we know there's a major epidemic of children who are going undiagnosed who have these silent, more silent issues. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I'll let you speak to more about this, but we know that, you know, the brain is restoring itself during sleep. And so is, is there anything yeah. that you want to add on that topic, just in terms of like what's happening in the brain and our airway when we are sleeping? Um, I will just quickly go back to the normal and common thing. Yeah. And that, that's something that I really um, try and harp on about um, that normal and common are not the same thing. And so just if your kid snores, it's still because uh, if you snore and granny snores, that means it's common in your family. It's still not normal. Um, and, yeah, and, look, I really wish that there was um, literally a question with, you know, when families touched base with um, child health nurses or, you know, the immunisations and things like that about do you hear your baby snoring? Can you hear your child breathing? Um, do they wake refreshed? Like just a few simple questions to get those um, um, get that ball rolling or bring it into bring it into the sphere of hang on let's watch this um, and yeah like like you said it affects everything it's not just oh, they wake up grumpy and they're a bit annoying at the end of the day like you know like when you're an adult with a fully formed brain and you've had a crappy night's sleep everybody around you annoys you and you know how to have relationships with your friends whereas if kids are learning to have, you know, interpersonal relationships, they're learning reading, writing, maths, all that kind of stuff. If you've had the equivalent, you know, this is just a total random number, but like you've been in bed for 12 hours, but you've had the equivalent of a good three hours sleep, you're not going to be equipped for that. Um, so, yeah, and I guess, so coming back to the, I guess what what's going on in the brain is that, that um, you're not getting that memory um, uh, you're not transferring short-term memory to long-term memory, memory, you're not consolidating memories, you're not, you know, all those synaptic things aren't happening where um, all those new learned skills are getting consolidated. Um, and that whole, um, I don't know if there's any research about it in kids, but um, certainly with adults, that glymphatic um, system that opens up in the brain only during sleep, which takes away waste in the brain, you know. Um, and look, I don't actually know what the, the research is with kids and the glymphatics, but um, certainly with um, adults, there is a link to that build-up of that protein and, um, you know, cognitive consequences because of that. Um, so all those, there's just so much restorative um, stuff that happens during sleep and good quality sleep. Um, and then, yeah, those, those play on effects of the rest of the day. Sorry. <laughs> I 
absolutely. No, and I think that that's so important because one of the things you mentioned earlier, you used the word formative, that these are the formative years. And I, I constantly say that even about my own children to my husband. I'm like, the formative years are really important between like birth and seven. Like everything that happens to them in these seven years is going to form them for the rest of their lives. So we can either really screw them up now or we can really help them through. <laughs> I, I laugh because like that's been my, you know, my whole thing on like, well, we have to feed them organic food and we have to make sure that, you know, they get enough sleep. I don't care what time they go to bed as long as they're getting enough sleep and they're waking up, you know, at a certain point after that. And I, you know, it's just, everything has been um, very much so around that conversation, but also just because mm -hmm. of, you know, basic psychology, they teach you this, that these are the formative yeah. and it just, it impacts so much. And I know that sleep disorders are connected to airway issues are connected to major health issues and major health events mm. throughout your life. And so yeah. you know, like if we can create these healthier habits now <clears throat> and get our children on track, you know, it's, it's that toss up between like, how do we get them sleeping and making also making sure also that they can breathe properly while they are sleeping and that their airway yeah. adequately open. And um, so maybe we can, maybe we can shift over to talking a bit about tongue tie again, because I think that, yeah, one of the things that I've seen is with like my myo patients and even with my infants, my, my infant feeding, you know, babies who have had tots, it's just, it all goes back to airway. Can this baby breathe properly? Yeah. Can, you know, the suck, swallow, yeah. breathe in an infant is often disturbed because they have an airway issue. And they can't seem to get in that rhythm because their airway's not patent. And if their airway's not patent, we have big problems because this baby needs to feed. And that's, you know, and it's just so, it's fascinating to me because why isn't anybody looking at that? Why are doctors turning mm. infants away? Why are they saying, oh, just go see the feeding therapist, which is great. Send them to lactation, send them to feeding, but then we need to be screening for this. And um, I will add that Richard Baxter, who's actually my first ever podcast guest, um, he just recently sent out a updated email article with his um, tongue tie, his tongue restriction questionnaire, and it's a screening tool to identify tongue tied patients. And on it, he does ask about, um, let's see, restless sleep, kicking, moving while asleep, grinding teeth at night, sleeping with mouth open, snoring uh, quiet or loud, mouth breathing during the day, large tonsils or adenoids, amongst other issues, hyperactivity, inattention, you know, so I'm really excited to see that this was actually published and that it has, um, it, it asks about these things, because like you were mm. saying, we need to have these early intervention providers, whether it's a pediatrician, whether it's a lactation consultant, an SLP or an OT who may be doing feeding with the infant, um, we don't have the, the nurses that come to our house after we come home from the hospital. I think I, I just spoke to somebody recently and I can't remember if that was Australia or um, Canada, I think it was Canada, but they had like some nurse practitioners who will come into their home, I guess, throughout the three months after you come home from the hospital. Yeah, there's nothing like that here mm. unless you hire them private pay out of pocket. And usually, usually they're just night nurses to take care of the baby at night so that you can sleep. So if you're not <laughs> breastfeeding, yeah. or they bring you, like they bring you the baby to breastfeed and then take baby back to like put baby back to sleep. This is what people do in the US. Um, and look, I'm not knocking it. If you can afford that, great. I never did it because I didn't oh, sleep. For me to have some stranger in my house at night while I was sleeping with my infant, to me, like I just couldn't like, I, I had too many- Relax. I was like, I, <laughs> You'd I, be I, in I, light I, sleep. Yeah. 
(laughs) Yeah, my children were in my room with me. But anyways, I'm like, I don't judge you either way. You do what you want to do. But anyways, the whole point being that we don't have that support even to have it as a, you know, as a new mom with a new baby, with somebody coming into the house and checking on us. It's just really those pediatrician appointments. And then we don't even go to our own gynecologist until six weeks post-op or, you know, post-delivery, which is absurd compared to what I know happens in other countries. And so there really isn't, there aren't many people checking on mom and there aren't even that many people checking on baby. And so now mom is home mm-hmm. with a newborn and it's like feeding is not going well. Nobody told me this might happen. What do I do? And then sometimes you reach out to the person, you get vulnerable, you reach out, they come, they help things seem okay. They leave, it all falls apart again. (laughs) Or like me, I took my daughter to the pediatrician to their IBCLC. And I was told I was just positioning her wrong, position her in the football hole, do this. It worked beautifully in her chair in the office. I took her home, it all fell apart. And I was like, well, okay. And they said she didn't have any restrictions or anything. So here I was at back, like back at square one. So I just pushed forward and suffered. Both of us suffered for 13 months. And it's insane to me that we do not have more support as new moms. And especially when it comes to two of the biggest things, airway and feeding, like we need to be able to eat and breathe to live. So, you know, you would think that we'd get more support around that. And I just, the fact that such a little restriction under the tongue can cause such a big impact and that it's not being looked at as that much Um, or people are now arguing the newest thing I've seen is people are arguing that tongue tie releases are not necessary and they're overdiagnosed and dentists are just you know dentists in the U.S. are release happy and look maybe that's true in some areas I don't know I'm not living in all those spaces but what I do know is that here in my area I know who the providers are that I trust that I refer to and they're Hmm. never going to release a baby who doesn't have functional issues and by function we mean sleep issues and airway, you know, airway issues and feeding issues. And that's why they're coming to us in the first place. So, you know, I think it's very important that we start having more of these discussions so that mamas can access the information they need, but also realize, yeah, that little tight piece of tissue or fascia under the tongue um, or the upper lip, keeping the mouth open, causing mouth, (laughs) you know, I've seen the tongues fall back into the airway. So sometimes the tongue is so tethered that when the baby's laying on their back, the tongue is falling back into the airway and they can't clear the yeah. airway. And if the nose is congested, well, now they're really going to struggle to breathe because they can't breathe through their nose. Now they can't breathe through their mouth that well. And that's why they also want to throw themselves onto their bellies because it forces gravity will then pull the tongue, you know, forward mm. out of the airway. So that's, I'm guessing that's exactly what happened with my child, but you know, I never, I'll never truly know, but that's, that's my <laughs> guess. And that is what I've seen with quite a few of my infants and you can even see with your own child, lay them on their back and open their mouth up and see where is their tongue? Is it up on their palate? Yeah. Is it falling back in their mouth? You know, is it laying down and forward? Is it between their lips when they're sleeping? You know, where is their tongue? Cause that gives you so much good information. Um, but anyways, I'll turn it back over to you, but I, I get very passionate. And I guess that I always with the, um, with, along with the tongue tie, um, talk about obviously how it's a muscle as it as is all the musculature around the throat. So when we're asleep, those things relax. So if your baby is resting with a visibly low-lying tongue during the day, yeah. when they're upright, can you imagine what's happening to that tongue and throat at night when they're lying on their back? 
yeah. how we are told how we have to position them, particularly when they're little. Um, and certainly here, um, we get I get a lot of clients that um, will say, "Oh, but the ped checks them." Um, so it's like at birth, lift up the tongue, no anterior tie. Yep, cool. And I was like, okay, but tongue tie is not based solely on the anatomy of the tissue. Unless a whole bunch of symptoms have been asked about and feeding has been assessed, then that's not a, a and the actual movement of the tongue, not just a little flip, look, look what's going on, then that's not a accurate diagnosis. But I think that's really hard for parents to grasp because it's like yeah but they're a pediatrician like surely they would pick that up also my gp said and like this and that and yeah someone said that these dentists are just trying to make money like trust me they're busy enough they don't need there are other things that make them a lot more money than a tongue tie release (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um yeah so and it can be yeah hard to get people sometimes on board because they'd be like, well, no, but my GP said it was fine or my PED or, you know, my IBCLC, but, you know, yeah. are they tongue-tie trained? So, yeah. We yeah. have that issue here too. It's, you know, why has nobody ever told me this? Why are you the first person that I'm hearing this from? I've been to all, you know, 13 other practitioners between my this specialist and my pediatrician and this IBCLC and that feeding therapist and, you know, you're our third opinion and I'm going, look. You know, not, and that's the thing. I wasn't trained in this in grad school and most SLPs and OTs, at least in the U.S., don't even get pediatric feeding training. I think I can count on one hand how many total programs do courses on pediatric feeding. So if they're not even talking about ped feeding, you know, why are they going to talk about tongue tie? They're not. They're not going to talk about ankyloglossia when they're barely talking about pediatric feeding. And they're not teaching on Mayo. I think now in the U.S., uh, I know at least the SLP programs are going to be at the ASHA um, position statement is now includes, you know, there's one for myofunctional therapy or facial myology. So now I think that they say, and I don't know how true this is, but I've heard through the grapevine that they're supposed to be adding like myofunctional therapy and oral facial myology oh, wow. into the graduate coursework, I think in the next couple of years. I don't know that that's definitely happening, but I would love to see that and pediatric feeding equally <laughs> introduced into the coursework because yeah. for me, I knew I always wanted to work with pediatrics, but they only taught us adult dysphagia and adults are completely different than infants and toddlers. The anatomy is different. The physiology, everything is different because they're growing. And when we talk about formative years, we know as feeding therapists that children develop their feeding skills between birth and about 36 months of age. And there's so much change going on during that time, just throughout all of development. There's such critical years that, you know, we can't just apply what we know about adults to peds. It doesn't work that way. Just make um, it smaller. Yeah. Right? It's like, they're just mini adults. No, they're actually not. Not until they're maybe about four or five. Then I can argue, you can, I can argue that maybe some of the anatomy applies the same, but like, well, they're still developing and things are dropping and shifting and changing and growing and yeah, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> so um, it's definitely one of those things where I think we need to be looking at these little ones and recognizing that the people who unfortunately spend a lot of the time, medical professionals who spend the most time with these kids are not trained in pedidural tissues. They're not trained in orofacial myology. They're not all trained in sleep disorders. Most of them are not trained in sleep disorders and airway issues beyond some of maybe the more medical complexities that are 
you know, taught in their, their medical programs. And so we need to recognize that a lot of this is post-doc or post-grad type of learning. And some of us yeah. have really gone down the rabbit hole with that and done, taken whatever yeah. courses we can get our hands on, read the books, listened to the podcast, you know, just, and, and worked with the patients, you know, and when you start working with these patients and you start seeing one after the next, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly, like what the underlying root cause of these are. And, you know, and then when you start to treat the root cause and you can see that, wow, like, like, like you said, like, look how fast sleep improved after the obstruction mm. was removed in your child. You know, that's, I've heard so that quick. Friends, yeah. oh, their tonsils came out and holy cow, I've never seen them. Like they slept like a rock and they seem rested the next morning and, you know, they just, their beh- some behaviors have improved. And I'm like, oh, look at that. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> <laughs> when our body gets what it needs to thrive. Like you mentioned at the very yeah. we're really going for optimal health, not, not, yeah. to, you know, survival, not, not sick survive and compensate. We want to thrive and work from a place of optimal health. And that was the other thing that I also saw on, there was a recent post in one of these groups that I'm in, and there are some older generations who work for minimal competency. And the thing that really bothers me about minimal competency, meaning like, what do we just need to give them so that they are, they're, they're surviving and they're okay. They can function. Like there's a difference between are they able to function to a certain degree and are they optimally functioning, right? And, you know, you you Mm. that word optimal in there earlier. And that's one that I love because if we're teaching them enough that they can compensate to get through their day, well, they're not, they're not thriving. They're not functioning optimally. So for me, I don't settle Mm. for like minimal competencies. I go for like full, optimal, holistic health. Like I want people to thrive. And I say this because I've worked with enough adults as well now in the Mayo world who had tetheral tissues who have come to me because one, one realtor came to me because she was like, I've had one phone call, a cup of coffee. I'm sitting in front of you. It's 10 AM and I'm exhausted. I'm done. I can't talk anymore today. Like my mouth is physically exhausted and I'm out of energy. And I was like, okay, well, let's dive into this. And and all she wanted to do was recite her wedding vows without being tired. And I was like, wow. And having a tongue tie release in myofunctional therapy did that for her. And she was like, I didn't know what I was missing. And that is a common theme I hear from adults. Mm. They've been sent to so many professionals, so many specialists, nobody can help them. They to the point where I've had a couple adults where they actually thought they had like PTSD or they thought they had mental health issues because people were like, you are making this up. And then I see them. I'm like, you're not making this up. You have a myofunctional disorder. Like you've got tight tissue, tight tethered tissue under your tongue and we treat them. And what do you know? All of a sudden they're now no longer mentally ill or crazy. And, and I'm not downplaying mental illness, but it's sad to me that doctors are so quick to write off adults when they're telling you these are my symptoms. Like sometimes these people are mm. actually, you know, they do know more about their body than the doctor does. And that's, yeah. And I guess, yeah. Oh, sorry. You go. No, I was saying, and that's where I think we really need to start listening to our parents and these patients because mm. they're telling us something that we can't always see with our own eyes. And it tells us we need to help yeah. them figure out the root cause of the issue. And I will never settle for minimal competency because I think we're doing a major disservice to our patients, whether they're pediatrics or adults. You know, we need to make sure they're thriving, not compensating because compensations, 
they just continue to snowball into larger compensations over the course of your life. I've seen it with the adult patients. So anyways, that's, that's my little rampage on or rant on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think come to on that kind of thing, like it comes down to your definition of health um, and that um, as an OT, my, my definition of health is not the absence of illness or sickness. It's when, you're functioning optimally, you're thriving, not surviving, and you have cohesiveness across that whole biopsychosocial model of of health. Um, and yeah, look, it com- comes back to that thriving again. Like I, I want my kids to thrive. Everybody wants their kids to thrive. And good sleep quality um, is literally a pillar of health. And for everybody sleep nutrition exercise are your three pillars of health um and you know and that also goes for the parents of children that are have these ongoing sleep issues um they're not healthy and optimally functioning whilst they are not sleeping well so there's this whole interplay with that whole system the family unit you know all of it um so yeah i mean sleep affects everything (laughs) oh yes 100%. 100%. I mean, and I always say this to, to parents, I'm like, think about what happens when you've had like, you know, three great nights of sleep and all of a sudden you just, you get like four hours of sleep one night. How do you feel the next day? Now let's pretend like that happens every single day of your life. <laughs> let's pretend like you're only getting yeah. three to four hours of good restful sleep night after night after night. And they're like, no, no, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> that's, your, that's how your child is surviving right now. Your child is basically yeah. surviving on, you know, three to four hours of okay sleep a night, despite the fact that they were in bed for 12 hours. And I think yeah. when we start to explain things like that to parents, they start to recognize like, oh, okay, well, that sounds horrible. So what do we do? You know, and, and, I, and I don't mm. do it to scare a parent, but I also will, you know, because I ask about sleep and everything that I do. So I, so I was so excited to have you on here because I'm like, I don't think we've had anybody on who's really talked about sleep in this regard before. And it's such an important topic that, you know, we've talked a lot about sleep disordered breathing, but not necessarily as it applies to like sleep training. Um, and mm. I just love your whole holistic view on sleep because I'm a very holistic person myself. And I think we need to be looking at the whole body. What is going on with this child? What is the root cause of the behaviors that we're seeing? And so thank you. Thank you for all this. It's been so amazing. Um, Is there anything, anything that we didn't talk about that you want to touch on? Um, I guess just briefly about the, um, the feeding sleep interplay. So um, which is actually, so I've done the feed the feed the peds course with mm-hmm. you guys. Um, and yeah, so look, feeding assessment um, forms a really formative part of my, um, my whole holistic assessment because, um, it, you know, you can pick up airway issues, you can pick up top issues, um, but you can also pick up, yeah, if they've got gas, if they're, snack feeding, you know, all those type of things. But so that that is a really um, important thing to look at um, when you're going to provide any kind of sleep intervention, mm-hmm. because not only because it um, can pick up those issues, but because a hungry, gassy baby that's exhausted from trying to draw milk out 
is never going to sleep well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that the whole that's that's why um, I think feeding and sleep are so so um, linked, um, and why I did your course. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, and thank you. <laughs> You're so happy to feed the peds. Um, it's really you know, and it's it's such an interesting like just me working with other professionals in this space because you know it's not just me teaching the course. Um, but we find that just across the board that, like you said, if these infants have feeding issues, sleep is probably going to be disrupted. Not always, but we yeah. really need to look at it because it is so interconnected. And like I was saying before, you know, a suck, swallow, breathe is going to be impacted if the baby doesn't have a patent airway. And that could be mm. one of the major causes of why they're not feeding well. And so we have to be looking at these things. And I find so often that we're not. Um, and mm. you know, even to the point where I've, I've heard of cases where, and I've had cases myself where they were sent to the ENT and the ENT said, baby's fine. And so baby's cleared to work with, you know, a pediatric feeding therapist and IBCLC and we're both, you know, babies breastfeeding and bottle feeding. We're all trying to work together. And then, you know, it just, things are not improving and we're going, something is, something is off here. Like I'm not convinced there's not an airway issue. So we send it back to another professional who then also refers to the ENT and all of a sudden the ENT now starts paying attention because now babies come back a second time. Now there's more professionals involved and we're like, why did you not take this seriously the first time? And we have this big issue in the U.S. where parents are just written off, even when they come with a report or a referral from a provider, another provider. And it's scary. It's sad that they're not looking for some of these larger medical issues that could be causing very serious airway issues. And, you know, there's things obviously beyond tonsils and adenoids. We could be dealing with a laryngeal cleft. We could be dealing with um, all kinds of things. But those are less frequent. More frequently, yes. these children just have some inflamed airway, you know, tissues that may be blocking the airways. And that's not a little issue. It's kind of a big deal, but we need to know about it so that we can address it. Because if we can get baby breathing properly, then it's much easier to get them to sleep, get them to feed, get them to just, you know, then they're functional little mini infant humans during the day. And yeah. so, you know, it's, it's so important that we talk about sleep more and more and that we consider what that means in terms of airway. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And that there are, uh, you need to look at it holistically and there are different, there are other options besides quiet out. Please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are other options. <laughs> I, w I wish I, I wish I knew that there were other options besides cry it out with Lily because I still have like that mama guilt even though I'm like I didn't know better but still like it just it breaks my heart like I told you I can tell you like how many minutes she cried to sleep every single <laughs> night for the first five nights before she finally like went to sleep after just a teeny bit of fussing and you know, and, and to know that I did that to a child who had like airway issues is I think that's what really kills me the most. Like I just, you know, I can't. So anyways, we're, we're beyond that. We're, we're dealing with her health issues. She's thriving. She's doing great now. Um, you know, not, this is not meant to shame anybody, but if you are in that boat, you know, where can they find you? I know you're in Australia, but if some, if a mom is listening in there or even if another professional and says, okay, we need to work with, <laughs> we need to work with Tosh. How do they find you? Yeah. So um, uh, my Instagram, so at soundasleepbabyau, um, and that's got links to all my websites and things or otherwise 
soundasleepbaby.com.au. And thankfully, through the power of technology, um, yeah, we're, like I can connect with people all over the planet. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's so awesome. Well, well, we will make sure that this is also in the show notes so they can contact you in case they're driving. Don't, don't try to write while you're driving. <laughs> um, and, and thank you. Thank you so much, Natasha, for joining me today. This has been amazing. Thanks for having me, Holly. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan, and you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 